Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Republic Chief Executive Graham Smith talks abuse of police power. Harry and Meghan have been papped again and Harry's ghostwriter has shared his experience of spare. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Graham Smith, Chief Executive of Republic. Now, the coronation was obviously a difficult experience for you, but not only because it was a celebration of an institution you want to abolish, uh, there was also a lot more going on than that. So do you want to talk us through what happened on May the 6th from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, we had a um, large protest um, planned for the coronation um, on Trafalgar Square and along the route. And we, you know, after four months of discussions with the police, we were pretty sure that um, that was all going to be okay with everybody. And in fact, I was on BBC News the night before, about eight o'clock the night before, uh, being asked about the police response and, and stressing that, you know, it was all okay and that they had no concerns, et cetera, et cetera. And 11 hours later, I was being arrested um, without any good cause whatsoever. So it was quite a... Um, it was a, a bit of a shock, to be honest, and uh, still quite stunned that they thought that was a good idea. But um, they came up with some various excuses, but it was fairly obvious in my mind that it was a uh, premeditated attempt to diminish and um, disrupt our protest. And in, in that, they did. I mean, the protest went ahead in a way, but um, not the way it would have uh, was planned. Tell me where geographically you were when you got arrested. Well, it was on um, St. Martin's Lane, which is literally just off uh, Trafalgar Square, just around the corner from the National Gallery. Um, so it's about a three-minute walk from where we were planning to uh, sort of base ourselves on Trafalgar Square. So it was very close. We had a van with full of placards, which um, we brought down. Uh, we'd been very clear with the police that we would be turning up with lots of placards. Um, and we weren't even allowed to remove those placards from the van. So they actually confiscated those as well, the whole van and the placards, plus our um, amplification uh, equipment that we were, uh, which we had for speeches, um, and then threatened anybody with arrest if they used megaphones and they removed certain placards and flags and stopped other people from entering Trafalgar Square. So the whole protest was dispersed across the area um, and then they arrested two other people. So there were six of the van that were arrested. Uh, and then later on in the day, they arrested two other people on the mouth for being in possession of megaphones, which again, they were, that's not a, that's a it's not an offense. Um, and, uh, we were very clear with them that they would have megaphones and would be using them. And they weren't using them because I think they've clearly been, um, worried by the arrests and therefore we're just standing there peacefully, uh, holding placards and things. But that didn't stop them from arresting two of those individuals. So in other words, you never actually got to your protest. You were you were still on the way when they stopped your... It, it was a van that they pulled over? Well, I mean, no. I mean, we were staying nearby on the same street, St. Martin's Lane, uh, for the two nights previous. And we actually got out uh, quite early and went down to Trafalgar Square to, with some other equipment that we had. And then one of my colleagues went and collected the van and uh, I met him nearby and jumped in then just to help sort of get him down, help him navigate down those streets down to where we were. And so we parked up 
opened the back and we were immediately descended upon and surrounded by quite a large number of police officers. I would guess sort of 20 to 30 on that street um, and immediately disrupted uh, and told not to uh, unload the van, even though there was nothing unlawful about doing so. Um, we were then, I, I told him that we'd had these conversations with the police. I told him the name of the officer, which he clearly recognised, and he simply wasn't interested. Uh, I tried to phone our liaison officer at the police, and he then detained me and stopped me from making that phone call. So there was, you know, ordinarily you would, I mean, I've dealt with the police many times, including five different protests we've had elsewhere in the country this year. And ordinarily, a police officer would just come up and have a very friendly chat, ask what you're doing. You know, if they weren't sure what was going on, they would phone in to the station, uh, talk to the liaison officer and let us get on with it. So they made no effort to do that whatsoever. It's very obvious that the moment we turned up, their intention was to arrest us. And tell me more about the actual context of it, because they claimed publicly, they sort of suggested that you had devices for locking on, which means uh, physically attaching yourself to railings or some other thing in the public domain that they would not then be able to remove you from. So talk, talk to me about that side of it. Yeah, I mean, it was complete nonsense. Basically, they, I mean, they, at one point they said they'd stopped us to search us because they had suspicion that we had these luggage straps, which is a lie, because they... Um, they had no idea we had them until they searched us. So we had luggage straps with us because we were using two trolleys to move 600 placards as quickly as we could down onto Trafalgar Square with minimal fuss and disruption to other people. So these straps are quite long. They're very easily adjustable um, and uh, they're also pretty easy to cut. Um, so, you know, there's no way that they could legally be considered lock-on devices. Um but their press statement later said that we were arrested for for something else. But the arrest was very clearly for being equipped to lock on. So they were they were very confused about which law they were using and what offences were being uh, we were being arrested for. And I think that's because there was a premeditated decision about what they would arrest us for. And when they found the straps, the officers on the ground arrested us for something else. Um, and um, they then rearrested me later on for the thing they put in the press release just to make sure that married up. And um, uh, and then, obviously, you know, come Monday, we were released on Saturday evening without charge, but on bail. And Monday, they then um, sent officers to our homes to personally tell us that we were they were taking no further action to return our phones and to hand over letters to that effect. Um, and I think that was the speed with which they did that suggests they are very concerned by the fallout and the possible repercussions. And I think it strengthens our case, really, that they, they clearly had no clue why they're arresting us on the ground. And I think that there were people senior up, uh, further up the food chain which, uh, who had made a decision before Saturday that this was going to happen. And they have since apologised to you, haven't they? Well, they haven't, actually. I mean, the officer that came to my door apologised, and I suspect it was he was made, probably told to, but the Met itself has only said that they regret that we couldn't protest, which, you know, if this was in Bogota, it would be called an abduction. You know, which in London is called an unlawful arrest. Um, you know, it is it is an outrageous assault on people's liberties that you can just grab people off the street, put them in the cell for sixteen hours, and then just kind of wave it off and say, "Oh, well, you know, sorry about that." So um, there will be further action. Um, we're taking advice from lawyers, um, and you know. We'll almost certainly take action uh, in terms of seeking answers as well as compensation. And the answers, in, in a way, are more important because I think we need to know who made what decision. So we're also going to be giving evidence to Parliament um, and we'll be writing to Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, 
who has raised his own concerns, and not least because the Metropolitan Police Commissioner um, has um, written back to Sadiq Khan, and his letter is full of thing, comments and statements which are clearly false, including the suggestion that the police on the ground were not aware that we'd been speaking to the police. Uh, we know categorically that is not the case. Um, they knew beforehand, and they certainly knew at the time, because as I said, I, I told them, but they weren't interested. So, um, But I know that the, the people that we met uh, and spoke to over the four months had briefed um, bronze commanders, who are the people that are in, in charge of each individual area, uh, and that we specifically said, it's all very well us meeting you, but will, will the officers on the ground be aware of what's been discussed? And they said, yes, of course, they will be, they will all be briefed. So... Um, Either they are catastrophically incompetent or they are lying. Yeah, okay. So what do you think about the political uh, position? Because obviously for people in America, they might not realise how much of a kind of burning issue public protest is in Britain at this moment. Obviously, there have been new laws passed by the government recently. You talked about Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, who obviously does have oversight over the Metropolitan Police, but the police also fall under the remit of the Home Office different political party, the Conservative Party currently in power in Britain. Do you think that there could be a role that the government has played in this, the Home Secretary? Yeah. I mean, I think that the Metropolitan Police has a very a far too close a relationship with the government. I think that almost certainly both the palace and the government would have put pressure on the police to do something to uh, disrupt and diminish our protest. Now, whether they um, what that pressure was like and who it came from, I don't know, but I have no doubt that that's the case. I think that the palace is probably quite concerned by the our statements that were becoming quite vocal in the previous two weeks, where we were saying, you know, we are going to be quite loud with 2,000 people uh, speeches. You know, we had an MP planned to go there. Um, I think they really didn't want that to happen. Um, I think the government didn't want that to happen, and the government also has a an agenda in terms of stopping protests more generally. So they rushed through giving royal assent to a law that was otherwise going to be uh, coming into force later in the year, which introduced these sweeping laws. Um, and I think it was all quite deliberate. So and uh, you know, the police are not independent of government, certainly not the Metropolitan Police. There's various ways or uh, means of leverage um, in terms of funding and so on, um, and just a very cosy relationship between police and government. So I think that there was certainly pressure from Home Office. And of course, three days before the coronation, the Home Office themselves sent us a letter directly telling us about this new law that's coming in, which is an extraordinary thing for the Home Office to do. They're not, you know, they were kind of interceding directly into a relationship between us and the police, which is a very odd thing for politicians to be getting involved in. So I think that's all quite deliberate. And my view is that, you know, the Metropolitan Police is the the police force for the whole of London, but it also serves as a kind of uh, FBI and all those sort of agencies they have at the federal level. It does all that kind of thing as well. So anti-terrorism, serious crime, and all the rest of it. And my personal view is that at the time the Metropolitan Police was abolished, that London had a separate local police force and that all those other aspects are separated out and that the Home Office has no direct operational influence because you know we're at a point where police officers now have such sweeping powers and are under such direct influence from politicians the politicians can effectively say right we need you to um disrupt this protest or that protest which is a extremely dangerous place to be for a democracy and these locking on device rules are, are so broad 
that if you are wearing a suit and you have a tie, a belt, and two shoelaces and a watch, you are carrying six locking-on devices on you, uh, according to our law. So, you know, which is clearly patently absurd. So, yeah, I think there there needs to be very serious um, questions asked and answered. And I would, you know, in terms of the royal's angle of this, I would say that the palace has to answer questions as well. And I would continue to raise questions as to why Charles... Uh, has said absolutely nothing in defence of our most fundamental liberties because I've spent 20 years doing this and 20 years of royalists saying the monarchy defends and protects our liberties and our democracy. And when those liberties and democracy are under direct threat in his name, uh, uh, on his big parade, he stays absolutely silent. I think that is something which needs to be addressed. So emotionally, you were sat in a police cell for 13 hours, I think you said. Um, what was that 16 like? 16 hours. 16 hours, forgive me. So what was that like to you? I mean, you must have felt pretty frustrated during that time. Yeah, I mean, it's traumatic, to be honest. I mean, it got better as the day went on because one of the detectives um, told me that we were all over the news around the world, and that is certainly um, reassuring because you know, not from a publicity point of view, but you know that people are also very concerned with what's going on, and that's reassuring. Um, and then later in the day, you know, lawyers turn up and all the rest of it. But it is um, akin to being just, you know, abducted off the street by people that have state power behind them. And, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen next. You don't know, you don't really understand the scale of these new laws. You don't know whether they're going to actually charge you. Um, And you basically have to sit in this cell, not really knowing what time it is, and just gets incredibly frustrating and boring. Um, And uh, and not knowing what's, I didn't know where my colleagues were. Um, I knew they were in the same building, but I didn't know what sort of uh, state of health they were in. I didn't know um, whether they had the right information about which lawyers to call. Um, So, you know, the complete absence of information uh, and concerns about your own well-being and, you know, future and whatever is, yeah, it's not an experience I would wish on anybody. And of course, it was, I think, hours before you were even interviewed. Is that correct? So you were basically sat there for a long time with very little information or anything happening before they even brought you into an interview room to speak to you. Yeah, it was about 10 hours, I think, before we were, uh, I was interviewed. I was the first one to be interviewed, I believe. Um, Some of them were uh, later still. I think there's certainly a pattern which suggests there was a combination of confusion amongst the officers in the station and deliberate. Uh, efforts to delay everything. There, there was no grounds for delaying it so late. Um, they could have interviewed me uh, five or six hours earlier than they did, and we're still unclear as to why that was delayed uh, so much. But once the interview has happen- uh, happened, it concluded, it didn't take very long, um, they said, well, you know, in about an hour, you should be out of here, and it was three hours later. So I think, you know, again, there are lots of questions as to why it took so long to do the interview and then why there was further delays afterwards because you know certainly as i was being bailed they were still interviewing the last of my colleagues um and that didn't take them very long at all so i think there was a deliberate effort to delay even and what time was it when they finally let you out 16 hours obviously a long time was this the middle of the night or the following morning it was i think about 11 o'clock in the evening the two people that were arrested in uh, later in the day on the mall, um, one of them was released around one and one of them in the morning and one, two in the morning. So, um, but at that time, I wasn't aware that they were 
Well, I didn't know where they were. Right. I found out after I got out that two of our volunteers were also in custody at a different station. Um, I'd been told that there were people there helping, but um, and I think there were from another solicitor from the same firm, but um, that was also an additional concern, so I had to follow them up and uh, make sure they were okay. But all eight of us are now being represented by the same lawyers and, um, and we'll take action. So what do you think the time frame is for that? When might you actually file a case? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's quite a bit of work to do, but I, I would imagine it, I, well, I don't. I wouldn't imagine anything really. I just, I just don't know. But I can't. I think it has to be. It's more likely to be weeks and days. But I mean, I um, hopefully not too many weeks because they obviously got eight people to go through and get uh, detailed information statements and so on. Uh, and then they have to obviously look, you know, lodge the case. These things are normally settled out of court, and I would imagine this one will be because it is such obviously egregious uh, attack on people's rights um, that. I think it's indefensible in court, so um, we'll see what their response is. But um, they're not exactly helping themselves by digging bigger holes by issuing statements which are patently false and and, and provably false. Yeah, Okay. Now, one final point. Do you want to just talk me through why you were protesting to begin with? Make your case. Yeah, I mean, obviously, no, we oppose the idea of a monarchy and the coronation is a celebration of monarchy and it's a celebration of that moment of inheritance of power and privilege. And our message was very clear that no, in a democracy, we should be participants, not spectators. And instead of a coronation, we should have an election. Instead of being told it's going to be Charles, we should be given a choice of who we want as head of state. And we wanted to make that very, very clear on the world stage and really drive home the point to the uh, an overseas audience that we are not a nation of royalists. We are a nation that has a monarchy. Most people don't care. A substantial number of people want it gone. And judging by recent polls on a variety of questions, the people who can be reasonably called royalists um, are probably 15% at most. Um, and so, yeah, this was a political event and it needed a political response in the form of a protest. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, the California paparazzi have been photographing Harry and Meghan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, anyone who has given Harry and Meghan's story even the most passing glance will know that they are obviously not in any way, shape or form fans of the paparazzi. Now, for Harry, this goes back to the death of his mother, Princess Diana, in 1997. She was obviously killed in a car crash while photographers were following behind her car. He was 12 at the time, so it was a deeply, deeply traumatic experience for him. And more recently, in Spare... Uh, He said that the very sound and sight of flashbulbs triggers his childhood trauma. He obviously was photographed a lot as a child while his mother was still alive, while he was in the back of her car. 
Um, and he's described some of his early childhood experiences of those kinds in their Netflix show, Harry and Meghan. Um, it's also got like this footage, which people might remember, of them being driven through New York. Their driver is kind of talking about how there was a photographer on a scooter at one point. It's kind of unclear whether the guy is actually following them. They seem to think that he is, although he never actually appears in the footage. The camera kind of pointed out the back of the car, and they're actually at one point like pretty much stationary in a traffic jam, and the scooter never actually shows up on camera. But all that means, it's very interesting that the paparazzi in California have been taking lots of photographs of them recently. So they've been got about four times since February, as far as I can count, and I'm talking specifically about examples of them being photographed going about their private lives. Anyone can be photographed by accredited media at an event or even photographers who haven't been accredited but have just pitched up outside a venue where you are going to perform your public role as a public figure, right? Like that's whether somebody works for a paparazzi agency or not, that is to some extent, at least at the very least, arguably a legitimate photo opportunity, a person doing their job who who is in the public eye, a public figure. But what's different is people who are just going out for dinner with friends or going for a date with their partner. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. So um, in February, they were photographed at dinner. And that was actually kind of a bad one from Harry's point of view, because he, like I said, he's talked about how like the sight of flashbulbs and the sound of a camera clicking produces a kind of trauma response in him. And he jumped out of the car and they all got out of the car and the photographer immediately kind of blew up on him with a flash. Uh, the you know camera flash is going off and Harry kind of goes, whoa. Uh, so it didn't look like a particularly enjoyable experience for the bloke. Um, and then in March, Megan was photographed with their press secretary again at dinner. So although that is obviously a working relationship, obviously people go for dinner with their colleagues. That is, I would argue, still an aspect of their private life because it wasn't a public event that they were going to. And then over the coronation weekend, Megan was photographed going hiking again with friends. Now, most recently, they uh, Harry and Meghan were photographed going for dinner in Montecito at a sushi restaurant. And one agency that is credited on a lot of these pictures is Backgrid, which I think is just basically like a clearinghouse for paparazzi images. So a lot of these photographers might well be freelance, attached to no agency, or they might be attached to a different agency. But Backgrid is kind of like a means of distribution. So this all reminded me of something that has been troubling me for a little while, which is the contrast between Harry and Meghan's attitude to the UK media and to the US media. Now, don't get me wrong, I do completely understand why they don't like the UK media. It makes total sense. There's been huge amounts of negative commentary about them in the UK, and some of it has been really petty and puerile and offensive. And, you know, I would only point out that it's not like the US media is above being petty, puerile and offensive. So it's very rare for them to actually call out the US media in the same way as they do with the UK media. And obviously, up to a point, that is kind of up to them. Like, they're not obliged to try to make themselves angry about the American media if they do just feel differently. But I suppose what kind of concerns me a little bit is that it winds up being a very one-sided narrative that comes across. So one exception is that, or perhaps a couple of exceptions, they do, obviously, they're not fans of Rupert Murdoch. And I think it's safe to assume that that goes for Fox, as well as for newspapers like The Sun and The Times that he owns in Britain. But a lot of their commentary about Murdoch is not necessarily tailored to the specific ways that US Murdoch outlets report on them directly. So it's kind of different. 
another um, exception is when Page Six printed photographs of Meghan picking Archie up from his first day at preschool in 2021. Um, Prince Harry went on the Armchair Expert podcast and he did call them out on that occasion. And people might remember it was the same podcast appearance where he talks about the First Amendment and said it was bonkers and there was a big backlash against him for that. Now, obviously, that example, turning up at school and photographing a child, that is a pretty big invasion of a person's private life in the UK that could very easily be uh, lead to a privacy lawsuit. You could sue over that and you would bet you would win. I mean, it, you know, you'd win by summary judgment. It would be an open and shut case. You can't photograph children at school. Uh, it would be a breach not only of privacy law, but also um, if it was published in a UK newspaper, it, you could report them to the regulator, the Independent Press Standards Organization. Again, open and shut case. Uh, they did also sue X17. This is, a, this is a US paparazzi agency who took drone pictures of Archie playing in private at Tyler Perry's house. Um, they, those were published in a German magazine called Bunter. So they weren't published in America or Britain, they were published in Germany. But this is, it's all something that I kind of noticed in Spare as well, which is that there are various points where the US media does treat Harry badly, but he doesn't really call them out for it. He kind of just blames the British media instead. So, for example, when he's photographed playing uh, strip billiards in Las Vegas with a young woman who's not his girlfriend, uh, he talks about the British papers venting and fuming without mentioning that actually the British press didn't initially run the pictures out of concern for his privacy. It was TMZ that published them. Uh, and then he talks about um, Princess Diana's secret taped confessions being published in the media in 2004. And he talks about how there had been a reckoning in Britain and people were supposed to have learned the lessons, including consumers as well as media brands. And he kind of suggests that, you know, people hadn't learned from what had happened with his mother's death. But he, what he doesn't mention is that the Peter Settlin tapes, they were called, were actually broadcast in America by NBC. So what sits kind of uncomfortably with me is that this is sort of what the tabloids do. They create a villain. In this case, the media is the villain. Obviously, very popular hate figure. Or loads of people hate the media. So, you know, I'm sure people will not necessarily object to the fact that he's done that. But needless to say, he's then kind of presented a very one-sided hatchet job that ignores the counter-argument. So, obviously, British people hate the media, Americans hate the media, you know, he's not short of supporters in his campaign to try to kind of draw attention to how the media's mistreated him, and he clearly despises certain figures on a personal level, like Rebecca Brooks, um, who he talks about in his book as being a kind of infected pustule on the ass of humanity. Um, but if you want to be better than the media, you have to be fairer than the media. And you can't just be fair to the people you like. Like, that isn't fairness. The definition of fairness is you have to be fair to the people you don't like. Everybody wants to be fair to the people they like. But the test of whether you are actually fair is whether you're fair to the people you're criticizing and whether you're fair to the people you hate. If you're just being fair to the people you like, that isn't fairness. That's just support. And I can't help thinking that if the UK media has treated Meghan and Harry worse in modern times, maybe it's partly because they were just so much more famous in Britain. Like, they are known to nigh on 100% of the public. YouGov, the polling agency, does surveys not only on how popular people are, but how well-known they are. They have a kind of fame rating, which is, I think, for Harry and Meghan, somewhere in the kind of high 90s, like 97, 98% of people know who they are. Um, they are exceptionally famous uh, and it's not just in a kind of casual way, but people care a huge amount about the royals. It's a massive source of debate. And maybe like 
it's not so much necessarily that the UK media is that much worse than the American media or, you know, the German media who, who published the drone photos of Archie or the French media who published uh, topless photos of Kate Middleton some years ago. But maybe they're just so much more famous in Britain that part of the reason why the reporting in Britain has been so much more frenzied is because of that fame. And actually, there are elements of the US media that can be just as toxic as the British media. Um, but being fair to all sides, you know, you kind of, I think, just have to acknowledge that. Like, it doesn't undermine the points they want to make about the British media and their specific experiences. But if it feels like you're kind of keeping something back or holding something from your audience, then that's not a great look for somebody whose whole shtick is about, you know, how unreliable the media is. And on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, just a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Prince Harry's ghostwriter has written for The New Yorker. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, J.R. Moeringer, Prince Harry's ghostwriter for Spare, his memoir, has written an essay for The New Yorker, and it's a really interesting piece. I would recommend you go out and read it. It's fascinating from the perspective of uh, the kind of battle for power between the kind of celebrity subject of the memoir and the ghostwriter who actually writes the words. Uh, It goes into the whole process that they went through and what really shines through is that kind of power dynamic. They were negotiating over what to put in the book and what should be taken out. And actually, there was one particular incident where it was like a late night Zoom call and they were actually having quite a heated argument with each other. And Moringer says he like was worried that the whole thing would disintegrate. The relationship between him and Harry would disintegrate and um, the whole book would, I guess, go to somebody else or be junked or, or whatever. And this particular disagreement was over an aspect of Harry's character, which it's now become clear he feels very sensitive about, and that's his intelligence. So it was a story about how he did a military exercise where the Brit- it was during his army training, and his kind of instructors staged a kidnapping, and they were then going to kind of mock torture him in order to see whether he could survive being treated that way for real uh, on the battlefield. And they were trying to break him, basically. And it got to the point where they went down that road that clearly should not be gone down, which is bringing into the discussion the death of his mother, Princess Diana. And at the end of the exercise, they kind of apologized and seemingly acknowledged that that was a low blow and somewhere that maybe they shouldn't have gone. Um, Now, Harry's original draft of the book, he'd put in this kind of smart, quick-witted comeback that he felt showed that even under extraordinary psychological pressure, he still had the presence of mind and quick wit and intelligence to kind of clap back at them for whatever they said to him. We, it didn't make it into the book, so we don't know what it was. Um, what's really interesting is Moringer felt that 
it kind of undermines the seriousness of the kind of symbolism of the fact that even in this moment he couldn't escape the trauma of the death of his mother um but also he put his foot down and basically refused and he won that particular dispute harry ultimately agreed to go along with him and i just thought it was really fascinating that he could do that you know like this is obviously harry's book but he was in a position where he could refuse to put something in that harry had made several attempts to get to stick back in the book even as Meringer was continually taking it out again and again so that was probably i think the most interesting thing about the piece but he also comes on jail Meringer comes on very strong about accuracy in tabloids as well which obviously i've just been discussing honestly like some aspects of spare i did think i mean i've just been talking about it i did think were kind of misleading so i was a bit surprised that he came on so strong about accuracy Um, i'm going to read you a tiny little bit of what he wrote uh he's talking about what happened after publication and how you know obviously there was a lot of controversy around the book and he, he says within days the amorphous campaign against spare seemed to narrow to a single point of attack that harry's memoir rigorously fact check was rife with errors I can't think of anything that rankles quite like being called sloppy by people who routinely trample facts in pursuit of their royal prey. And this now happened every few minutes to Harry and by extension to me. Now, I kind of get what he's saying because there was some stuff that was a bit kind of out there or just a bit of a pointless distraction. But there were also some bits of the book that I did honestly think were quite misleading, including at points in quite a serious way. I think the worst is probably a section of Spare which suggests that the Queen's former press secretary had warned Harry to expect no mercy. So I'm going to read this so that people can hear it for themselves. He's talking about a story in the Daily Mail that had been done um, in the aftermath of Harry and Meghan's royal exit first being announced in 2020. Make no mistake, it's an insult, cried the Daily Mail, which convened a Fleet Street jury to consider our crimes. Among them was the Queen's ex-press secretary, who concluded with his fellow jurors that we should hereafter expect no mercy. I shook my head. No mercy, the language of war? Question mark. Right, so um, there is only one Queen's ex-press secretary who regularly does the rounds commentating in the media and to the to the public, and that is Dickie Arbiter. And sure enough, Dickie Arbiter is the person who was in that Daily Mail story. However, he did not actually say the words, expect no mercy. That was a different commentator, a man called Trevor Phillips. And so those words never left Dickie Arbiter's mouth. But also, it wasn't like a real jury, you know, like it, it was Dickie and Trevor Phillips and a couple of other people had each separately given interviews to different UK news organisations. The Daily Mail then came along and pulled all those quotes together into a single story and called it a Fleet Street jury. But they weren't there present in the room together as jurors agreeing with each other's perspective. So Dickie Arbiter had no control over what Trevor Phillips said to a completely different news organisation. So I cannot see how anybody could read that section of spare and come away with any conclusion other than what the common sense meaning of those words is, is that the Queen's former press secretary felt that they should hereafter expect no mercy. And that is simply not true. He didn't say that. Those words were completely unconnected to him. They were connected to Trevor Phillips, who's never worked for the palace as a press secretary and I honestly think that if Dickie Arbiter sued, there's a good chance that he'd win and that Harry's very lucky that clearly he can't be bothered. But 
he was upset about it and asked for an apology. And I actually contacted the publisher and the Sussexes for comments on when we were covering this story. And no clarification was received. So I do think that's quite serious, really. And, you know, honestly, I have long said that in royal reporting, and I think particularly in the world of royal biographies, nobody comes out completely unscathed. There'll always be something that somebody might regret publishing at a later date. All the big biographies do have mistakes, some being genuine, you know, typos or stuff that was just missed by the fact checkers. That's an accident or whatever. But I do kind of think that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I think that Murringer's comments here are so strong. I just don't really understand why he went in so strong when actually there is some stuff in his book that's potentially quite seriously misleading. I'm just going to read the quote from him one more time. He says, Within days, the amorphous campaign against Spare seemed to narrow to a single point of attack that Harry's memoir, rigorously fact-checked, was rife with errors. I can't think of anything that rankles quite like being called sloppy by people who routinely trample facts in pursuit of their royal prey. And this now happened every few minutes to Harry and by extension to me. I mean, it's not the only thing he says about it. He says, he says other stuff about accuracy and so on and the tabloids. But I think it's kind of similar to the way that Harry and Meghan sometimes position themselves as well, which is that I kind of think if you overinflate the balloon, it bursts. And there's a really legitimate core to Harry and Meghan's argument. And there's a leg- legitimate core to J.R. Murringer's argument here as well, because I think some of the stuff written about him probably was unfair. But just don't go over the top. You know, the harder you go in on other people, the harder people are going to go in on you. So I think that a little bit of toning down and maybe some acknowledging of the fact that not everything in spare was the total, like, unvarnished, you know, pure as the driven snow factual reality might have been a better way to play this one. But with that, I'm going to say goodbye. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thank you for listening and a curtsy to you all. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.